Hey, Andy Phillips here. And I'm Tom Hackett. You may remember us from that time when we used to try really hard to make plays on fourth down. Well, we're back at it with a brand new show called Special Forces Gang, where we give you new perspective on what it takes to be a football player. We talk all things Utah football, sports, and life. Don't miss Special Forces Gang. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or on kslsports.com. Go Utes! Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our interview with Chris Fussell. I'll use this analogy sometimes as leaders to say, look, you, you, if you're uncertain as a belayer and you're nervous because you don't know if your partner who's up there in all this risk is capable of making the next move or you think they're in a risky spot, your tendency will be to tighten up the rope because you, you think they're going to fall and you want them to fall less, fall, less, less distance. And you're nervous, so you want to make sure you're ready to catch some problem that's about to happen. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to get involved with Child Rescue, the charity our founders started. To learn more about them, just come to our website, iCollective.co, and check on the Child Rescue tab on our menu. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let him become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper, but uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all, so I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, Probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, So totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. He's a managing director at the McChrystal Group. He is a former officer in Naval Special Warfare with the Navy SEALs, going all the way right to the very top unit for uh, the special mission units. Um, best-selling author, New York Times bestseller, Team of Teams. His new book, One Mission. I don't know if it is a New York Times bestseller yet, but is it already or is it just about to be? Uh, we were uh, Wall Street Journal bestseller, which we were really happy about. Okay. And, um so we'll give we're open to make New York Times business list, but we'll see. Uh, <laughs> they won't tell us. <laughs> I, I think you will. It's here's the thing. There's you know I've been doing one to two audiobooks a week for almost a decade now. It's you know kind of right between six and seven hundred bucks I've been through, and yours has a unique credibility where it's not just I've got this great idea and here's one story to support it. Um, you've got such a robust data set of your own personal experience and then matching it out across industry that, um, you know, I think it'll be one of these books that five years from now and 10 years from now, people will keep reading it. I don't think it's going to be one of the business fad books. So personal opinion. Well, thanks, Jess. I appreciate uh, that. Thank you. 
Well, listen, um, as we were ending that last uh, episode, I didn't want to end, but <laughs> time-wise I did. Um, we were talking about a couple of subjects I'd love to, to continue on, namely servant leadership and having a communication structure that is fast enough to keep up, keep up to the rate of change that our organizations are up against. Um, you know, before the show here, we were talking about uh, an individual from Naval Special Warfare that we both know in common who, in my opinion, is an extremely intelligent guy, but not the type to show up and force things down your throat. Um, can you talk about people who want to become more of a servant leadership, more of a servant leader and, and just ways they can take a look in the mirror or ways they can self-monitor or books they should read or just the Chris Fussell advice on becoming more of a servant leader? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'll take a stab at it. Um, I think the, the, the first part of the conversation is really around what's different in the world. And so I don't know what it was like to lead in the 80s. I mean, I wasn't I didn't really I wasn't at any sort of senior enough position to feel like I didn't know everybody underneath me really towards the very end of my my career. Um, so what it was like to lead in, in very traditional structures, I don't know. So I don't know how important any of this was in, in old systems. Probably would have been nice to have, but I think you could um, I think you could act like the all-knowing great person when you were running an, a, a big enterprise in the 1980s. It was better if you really connected with people. And the, the great case studies that came out of the 20th century, they, they were all level five leaders that really understood and cared about people. Um, but you could probably fake it uh, and get to a pretty high level because the world was more understandable. So the first part of that question really is what's different now? And what's different is we are at the still in the early stages globally of entering the information age. And this is a global shift. And that's hard to get your head around. But, you know, think about what it would have been like to be a, you know, a blacksmith and live through the Industrial Revolution and realize, wow, I, I spent years learning how to make this one thing. And now that factory down the street can make a thousand of them an hour. I mean, that's that's just mind boggling. Right. So mm -hmm. we are on the front end of this mind boggling curve and the world will be a different place when we get through this. And we're only starting to really feel it. We only felt it in the military because we got thrust into this environment very quickly. And we encountered an enemy who they weren't geniuses at creating some new strategy. They just started to connect very quickly. So they very organically, they created this new sort of problem. It wasn't some you know, grand offsite that they went to and came up with it, right? So this is all very early stage. And I think for the leader in today's environment, you, there has to be an, a realization and acceptance that in the information age, in, a, in an interconnected world that can move ideas at light speed to as many people as want to listen to them, the world hasn't seen that before. We're, and we're seeing it disrupt political cycles, enterprise, military. I mean, it's happening in every big system now on a daily basis almost. And so there's a different sort of problem that leaders are faced with. You cannot possibly understand all of the dynamics of your market, of the battlefield, of whatever space you happen to be in from the top tier position. It was never wholly true that you could, but 30, 40 years ago, cycles moved slow enough that it, you could use your staff and make it appear like you kind of did understand it all. Well, you can you can try to do that now, but I guarantee if that's how you're living, <laughs> someone out there is, is eating your lunch mm -hmm. and you just don't see them yet. Right. Because the world just moves too fast for that. So when leaders cross that threshold, the 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 massive implication there is you have to humble yourself to to the speed of the problem. And 
understand that the best information is the people that are inside that changing situation. So how can you connect with them human to human? I mean, you can, we can talk about the tech structure and the process that goes into that. But once you've built that out, how do you have a human to human conversation with that person that says, let me know what you see right now. I understand how hard it is. I understand how fast the market's changing, how difficult this, this threat network is, whatever the case may be. Give me real, raw, honest information. I'm going to digest it and think about it out loud in partnership with you. I will own accountability for where we're going at a strategic level. And I will redirect us based on what I'm hearing right now. And then I will, again, decentralize down to you with that refreshed intent so that you can move again very quickly against this problem. That's a different type of behavior. And it's, it's uncomfortable for, for, for both parties, right? Because we've all been junior in organization. You just want to send your report up, have them grade it, and get your next set of directions. I mean, that's a very comfortable place to be. And that, that, that changes. You, you honestly want me to give you my opinion because what I say next might be contrary to what you said yesterday or last week. Are you going to give me that space? So is that a safe conversation to have? And so and then there's discomfort on the, on the top level because they we're asking leaders now to, to relearn everything they were brought up to understand. You know, the, our senior leaders now are brought up in the 20th century and we're saying – the information age is fundamentally undermining about half of that. And so you really do have to learn an entirely new approach uh, in how you communicate with people in your organization. And so that's uncomfortable. So I get it. It's hard for it's hard for everybody right now. But the option, the choice isn't ours. Like, in my opinion, this is an existential decision that organizations, military, nation states are going to have to make over the next 10 years. Are we going to change the way we think and operate to transition into the information age, or are we going to wait for it to just rear Ted and potentially destroy us very quickly? Yeah. Well, you know, it makes me think, you know, I, th we, we were talking about, <clears throat> it, I have a question for you and I'll preface it this way. You know, um, you came out of uh, Naval Special Warfare Development Group and, you know, with, with the movies out there, like Zero Dark Thirty about you guys getting Bin Laden or Captain Phillips, you know, saving Tom Hanks there, right? Um, there, there's a lot of eyes on what you guys have done, and it seems like there would be such a temptation for the guys at the top to want to micromanage. Like, sure, in general, I realize that we, we've got to push, we've got to push, you know, decision-making power down because we're just, you know, the enemy we're up against is is iterating too fast and we're not keeping up. But at that human level, this like the ego we all need to push against and the everything. When you guys do such high-profile no fail missions. Um, th there's got to be a, a human element that has to be conquered to say what's right for the mission instead of what do I feel like doing? Because they've got the authority to, to, to micromanage if they wanted to. So my question is, do you have any examples from your career, whether it's General McChrystal or anybody else of somebody who set the example for you of submitting their ego and doing, you know, being willing to <laughs> enforce humility on themselves and not micromanage when they could have? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a yes. I mean, you would see things like that every day if you were watching the leadership closely to answer your question. So I, I'll, I'll throw an example or, or, or two out. But you're, you're exactly right that, that the information age, the the negative, if you if you took a strictly bureaucratic approach, which is, you know, measurable metrics and everybody's got their job and they're going to do it and promote up, et cetera. And now I have the technological capability to see all of that. Well, oh, my gosh, now I can be the world's greatest micromanager. Um, and, and it's really at your fingertips. And so 
we built out uh, a system like that because we wanted to interconnect as much as the uh, the threats we were facing were, were interconnected themselves. And so our senior leadership, and this isn't unique to the to the, to the military, but um, quite literally could connect with anybody anywhere in the world with the push of a button. So they could sit at some headquarters somewhere and watch a, you know, watch an operation through uh, remote feeds going on in the other corner of the world hit a button and talk to the operators on the ground. Um, you know, there's footage of some of the more famous operations uh, in the past several years where that's, that's you know, v- visible and obvious, but they, but they never do. That's, that's the point. So McChrystal and some of our other senior leadership started to use this, this sort of phrase, uh, eyes on, hands off. And the eyes on means we're all connected. We can all see what everyone else is doing. So the transparency is at a level that it's never been before. And we all have the ability to communicate, communicate through those, those systems. So that's sort of the eyes on. We're all watching each other all the time and holding one another accountable to executing against the mission in the right way and, and being uh, connected as a true singularly focused teams. But the hands-off idea was the critical part of that, which is I'm not going to leverage that to the disadvantage of the, the teams on the ground. So I'm not, I'm not going to intrude, to your point, and micromanage you to get from point A to point B. I'm going to watch it so that I can learn from it and I can be one or two layers up and a few layers removed. My eyes on give me the ability to connect different parts of the organization as something emerges from something you're doing in one corner as a few layers up, you know, mid-level manager, so to speak. My eyes on capability says, oh, that, that's critical information to this team over here. So let me pull it up push it over and connect it down to that side. And then if necessary, I can connect these two teams so they can have a conversation about what's shifting inside of the network. That's sort of the, so the end state that so many organizations are trying to get to is that, that connectivity that can be leveraged from technology, but avoiding the micromanagement that, that you refer to. So to, to your earlier question, every time a leader decided not to do that, they were demonstrating that higher level uh, leadership because it's always easier. Again, our bureaucratic muscle says, I don't know, I'm not really comfortable or good at the job I'm doing right now because I've never done it before, but I was really good at the job below below me and the one below that. So it's easier to go down and in than it is to think up and out. And so that was the real challenge that our leaders had to uh, drive through. Yeah. And I mean, you don't have to mention anybody by name, but maybe position or something like that. Can can you just talk about one or two guys that had a big influence on your career, guys you looked up to? Um, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, McChrystal's an obvious one. I had the unique advantage of working uh, inside of the the task force that he was running globally for several years, um, multiple layers down as he first took it over was able to sort of feel and experience the, I think the change that he was, he was trying to get his hands around in the early days. Um, he was a, you know, soldier soldiers was always out on the battlefield doing rounds at the outstations, but one of these, uh, very unique military leaders that would, you know, he'd come into your little outstation in the middle of nowhere. And instead of demanding some sort of formal presentation, which we we're all hardwired to do, he would want to sit down and say, "Okay, describe what you're seeing. What do you what do you think's going on? What do you, you so you'd have this very open dialogue back and forth at a whiteboard, and you'd throw out ideas. And he was very open to that sort of uh, that sort of conversation in the early days before the other process got up up and running. And then I was able to spend a year with him uh, as his aide de camp when he was running his last year running that 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 global organization. So we were in Iraq for the most of that year. And, and from that position, I was able to just sit and watch and observe how he was as a 
as a leader, the behaviors, the, the changes that he had made in his style and how that affected other parts of the organization. And, and the leadership team collectively had become this whole different uh, played this wholly different role in their approach to the organization. So that was, that was probably the most influential uh, person in my, in my personal evolution inside the, the military. Um, but I would say uh, collectively, like the, the, the biggest, I mean, you know, you, you spent some time with special operations folks. I mean, it's, it's a really powerful tribe, right? So it's, it can be a, a, an intimidating place and you have to be, you have to understand the norms of the tribe. If you're going to, if you're going to, survive and be able to create relationships and get things done. Um, and that, that can, um, that can steer you towards, uh, becoming, taking on a role rather than being true to your core capabilities, if that, if that makes sense. And that happens in any powerful tribal, uh, enterprise, right? So the best leaders that I learned from were the ones that understood the norms of that, but were also, you could tell, I am talking to you as a person, you are you have remain, retained your, your core identity as a leader, and you know how to plug that into this very pr- powerful tribe that we're all part of. And I've seen that same thing play out in industry where you can – and I'm sure you've seen this as well. You, you can see these two clear types of leaders, one that you've become the type of leader you're, – you're forcing yourself to become the type of leader that you think this organization wants you to be, and you can see an, a discomfort with that and – Sometimes it can be disingenuous. Sometimes it can just seem like, wow, this is killing you. Like you're, you're, you're playing a role and you've been playing a role for a long time. And that, the stress of that builds up. But then you can see others that say, I understand how this enterprise. I believe in it. I understand what makes it powerful and how the tribe, so to speak, functions. But here's who I am as a leader and how I can best uh, affect our mission. And so you can see a, a genuineness there. And sometimes that, that, that rubs a little bit at, at uh, odds with the, uh, the traditional approach. But if those, those people, when you see them, like, you, you are who you are. They're, they're the happier people. They're more well-rounded. They have that uh, a sense of uh, balance in their lives because they've, they've stuck true to themselves. So coming up early in my career, I had a few um, unique leaders that – and this is pre-conflict, but the tribe was no less strong when I joined in the late, late 90s who demonstrated that, hey, you can, you can do this both ways. And I was far from perfect at it because it's, that's just a hard balance to strike. But those were, those were early role models for me that I always tried to emulate. And when I see it in industry too, I'm like, it's, it's eye-opening to me to realize how that's, a, uh, that's sort of a universal divide that I've seen in many different spaces. Yeah. Well, and I want to leave us five minutes to talk about, you know, somebody reads the book, which anybody who's listening definitely needs to go get on Audible and, and get this audio book and listen to it on your commute or, or get a hard copy if you need to. But um, let's say someone reads the book and they, they're convinced, okay, you know what, we need to increase our rate of communication. I want to leave five minutes to talk about what are the first steps you recommend for people. But just before we leave this servant leadership thing, um, you know, I think about the people that I feel like live that servant leadership um, that, that I look up to. And there, there's this sense amongst them of like, they're willing to let people make a few mistakes so they can learn rather than do everything perfect every time. And I know that it takes discipline to, to see that it could be slightly better. You know, nobody's going to die. It, you know, it's not a critical problem, but to, to discipline themselves to not butt in. Um, any, any thoughts on what you think leaders need to tell themselves in order to, you know, to support instead of, um, metal? 
It's an important question, and I I think the the leaders need to look at that as a relationship between their actions, their behaviors, and whoever's on their team. So, I I'm a, I like to rock climb. So I've been climbing for for years and years. Um, and there's a there's a powerful analogy in the sport of climbing to I think what you're what you're talking through here, which is in climbing there's there's one person climbing, so there's one person going vertically up the rock, and there's another person who is belaying them. So they're the they're the partner. It's the much less risky part of the equation because the the belayer is holding the end of the rope that's securing the climber, but it's a very important job. So the climbers up there going vertically, they fall, they're going to get hurt and all this stuff. So the, their stress level is pretty high. But the, the belayer is a an important almost sort of dance partner in that in that equation because they are feeding rope to their climber. They're taking rope back away when the climber's at a, a difficult spot. Or and so there's a, this very uh, delicate balance in the amount of rope that is going between the belayer and the climber. And it's a relationship. And so I'll use this analogy sometimes as leaders to say. Look, you, you, if you're uncertain as a belayer and you're nervous because you don't know if your partner who's up there in all this risk is capable of making the next move or you think they're in a risky spot, your tendency will be to tighten up the rope because you, you think you're going to fall and you want them to fall less, fall less less distance. And you're nervous, so you want to make sure you're ready to catch some problem that's about to happen. But your, your belayer can feel that because they feel the rope tense up on them. And now you've You've extended your your nervousness up into them, and they're they're the one in the critical moment, right? And so the last thing they need is the person <laughs> on the other end saying, "I don't, I'm not sure you're going to be capable of doing I'm not this." Sure so I'm going to tighten this, right? So I'm going to tighten up this rope, and I'm nervous, so you should be nervous, and then uh, it can all go haywire very quickly. I so love- you have to, as as the belayer, you have to you have to relax for them, give them give them the rope they need, and when they if they do fall. You're in it with them, like react to the moment, catch them on their fall, tell them it's okay, get them back on the rock and then let them try it again. And so if they feel your calm and confidence, they're much more likely to get through that move and there'll be no problem that you have to deal with. And so I think leadership in many ways is very similar. Like you have to give your people can feel the other end of the rope. So you have to give them the slack they need, expect that they will fall before they get through the hardest climbs, catch them as their belayer, talk it through. And then give them rope again. And so allowing – that's the only way they're going to learn and become the better player that you, you want them to be. And, and eventually you can as – a, as a leader, you can have a lot of people on different ropes and you know which ones to give a lot of slack and which ones to watch a little more closely. But the most important thing is when you, when you yank that rope, they'll feel it. And they're going to perform at a lower level because they know you, you don't believe in them. So – that's that. I mean, that's a hard thing for folks to get used to, and, and a traditional system doesn't encourage that. But in a decentralized model, you have to lead like that because you can't possibly find the time to micromanage and keep everybody's rope really tight. Yeah, uh, I love that. I hope you're okay with me plagiarizing that story because that is awesome. We'll give you credit, but that that's <laughs> such a great analogy. Um, so, uh, want to be cognizant of your time here. Um, as as just kind of a closer here, besides reading the book, what what do you think are first steps? So people say, okay, you know what? Our communications tempo is not what it needs to be, but we've got a big, heavy bureaucracy that's not going to be easy to change, and I'm not at the top, so I can't just mandate it. What, what's a what's a first step as they move towards uh, move towards something like this? Yeah, what, one of the first things to consider is. Do you believe this theory of the case? Because this is a bigger, this is a big theory of the case. Um, 
spend some time considering that. Do, do I fundamentally believe that the world is, is changing and problems are manifesting in a faster and different way than they would have before the information age? And do I believe that this problem is only going to get more intense? If the answer to both of those is yes, then then we can go, we can move forward in our thinking. The answer to either one of those is no, then maybe, maybe you don't need this. Um, I would argue if the answer to both is no, you're probably in some sort of existential risk in the next five to 10 years. You're just not willing to recognize it or it hasn't, you haven't seen it clearly enough yet. But if the answer to both is yes, then look at your organization and say, what are we optimized to, to, to fight against? Like, what, who are we trying to, to compete with? And you're probably mapped to, like structured competitors. So we're, you know, we're this big car maker, we're, we're our competition, this big car maker, whatever, whatever the case may be and say, okay, so at, at, at full tilt, you compete each other against each other and you, and you play the same game. The market dynamics are the same for both of you. Um, so there's a lot of similarities. It's just, you're trying to create a more optimal structure. Now ask yourself when you miss nowadays, why everybody's working 90 hours a week and totally overloaded on information traffic and you're still missing opportunity or deals are getting past you or you're getting to crisis mode on a daily basis because problems are emerging so quickly. Ask yourself about the speed of those problems. Where are they coming from? They're probably not coming from your traditional competitor because you can see them so clearly and they can see you so clearly. They might be coming from startups. They might be coming from an interconnected consumer base that can talk about your product and challenge its quality in a way that, at light speed, in a way that could never happen, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, it, it, it might be, um, you know, changes in the in the market that just shift overnight based on new regulatory findings or whatever the case may be. Focus in on those fast-moving problems and, and then start to ask yourself, okay, what's the delta between how fast the purpose-built machine we have can move at full tilt, which we know is not sustainable, and how quickly that machine can react to problems or find opportunity or close deals? And then when we miss, when we have crises that pop up, how fast are those changing? The delta between those two, your, your max capability and the, these new emerging types of problems, that's the time horizon you have to close for. So that's the big question we started to ask ourselves in the special operations fight, which was, look, at full tilt, we can move this machine like every other day or so. But we have networks that are shifting 16 times every period of, of light. And so we're way behind where we need to be. We're faster than any other like structured competitor, but we're way slower, slower than these these networks. So we have to increase our cadence to match that. That's why we went to 24 hours, not because our leadership thought it was a good idea. It's because they realized that's how fast our problem's moving. So don't just start change for change sake. Start with really looking at the external environment and saying, what are we trying to solve for here? How fast does it move? And if we want to truly decentralize down to our teams, how fast do we need to realign them? Then you can start to build a system from you know, understanding your environment back up into the model. And the other piece I would, I would add to that is back to your first point, you know, I don't want to change the whole thing, da, 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 da. That makes total sense. And this is what we'd argue is you're not going to throw away what's on the wall. You're going to layer on top of that purpose-built machine the capabilities and adaptability of a network and you become that that hybrid structure so you're and you'll end up throwing away stuff or, or optimizing stuff that doesn't that becomes redundant in that sort of model but this isn't a whole wholly new rewire it's it's layering in the adaptability of of networks that is ubiquitous externally today because because of the information age and learning from that and pushing pushing it into the parts of your system that are 
many parts that are probably working really well. Um, if you're if you've been around for years, you're doing something right. So it's improving what has become an insufficient solution to 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 get it into this uh, structures that work today. I love it. Well, uh, if you haven't heard it from me already, everybody listening needs to go get their own copy of One Mission. Chris, thanks for making time to be on the show today. Uh, we really benefited from it. Jess, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Great discussion. Great. And that was part two of our interview. If you missed part one, please go back an episode and download the episode before this one for the first half of the interview. As always, please check iCollective.co for show notes of things referenced during the interview and to learn more about our guest. And if you're interested, we'd love to have you learn more about the charity Child Rescue. Go to the menu page on iCollective and click on Child Rescue. Thanks so much. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.